from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Have you ever wondered how tornadoes form? Well, up until recently, scientists would tell you they come from the top down. Our first guest this week thinks it happens the other way around. We'll hear from her today, and then we'll chat with a researcher who believes climate change is impacting everything from food security to traffic safety. The atmospheric scientist and the environmental economist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. This week on the program, we are talking about climate, but at two very different scales. As usual, we'll be joined by two researchers working in vastly different fields. And then, toward the end of the show, we'll come together to try to build some connections between their worlds. Joining us on the line from Athens, Ohio, is Jana Hauser. Her recent research, presented at the American Geophysical Union's fall meeting, suggests the notion that tornadoes come from the sky might be wrong. They might start on the ground and work their way up. She's a passionate teacher who likes to use unconventional teaching methods. And if your picture of someone who researches tornadoes is one of someone in a big truck with like lots of equipment on it, chasing storms across the Midwest, well, I've got news for you. Ah, You're right. Jenna Hauser, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Also joining us on the line today from Cambridge, Mass., is Nick Oberdovich. He's one of the world's foremost experts on climate-related political behaviors and policy attitudes. But recently, he's been doing a lot of work on the impact of climate change on people at a very personal level, including how it affects our mental health, our mood, even our sleep. His recent paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences suggests that warming temperatures impact the ability of public servants to do their jobs, and that could have fatal results in our near-term future. Nick Oberdovich, thanks for being here. Sure, thanks for having me. First up today, the atmospheric scientist. Thought you'd change the weather, start a little storm, make a little rain. But I'm gonna do one better, hide the sun until you pray. I'm a tornado, looking for a soul to take. That is the sultry voice of Karen Fairchild from the country music band Little Big Town in the 2012 song Tornado. And yes, of course, I tried to find a good scene to play from the 1996 movie Twister, but all the clips sounded like this. Jenna Hauser, everything I know about researching tornadoes comes from that movie. And man, it looks scary and it looks loud. What does the work actually look like? Well, the reality of tornado chasing, and especially when you're doing it for scientific purposes, is actually considerably more boring. Uh, We kind of joke around that there's like 90% waiting, sitting around in gas stations. Sometimes you're sunbathing, sometimes you're eating, and then maybe 10% of the time you're actually like doing something exciting. If you'd asked me just a few weeks ago, before I saw your research, I would have told you that I'm sure somebody knows how tornadoes get started, but... They didn't really. Why don't we have a better idea of how tornadoes form? Tornadoes are a pretty elusive phenomena to study because we don't have particularly good observations in the space and time frames over which tornadoes are occurring. So traditionally, radars that you see like on the Weather Channel, those radars are actually relatively few and far between, and they scan the atmosphere very slowly. A tornado evolves actually very quickly. So it's, you know, the the traditional radars are taking observations of the same place in the atmosphere roughly once every four to five minutes. 
whereas tornadoes are changing pretty dramatically um, on timescales as short as several seconds. There's actually a really large chunk of the tornado's life cycle that we're missing with these conventional radar. So the mere time issue is, is a problem. So the work that I've been doing is with a special mobile radar that collects data on the order of, you know, once every 20 to 30 seconds. How close do you have to be and, and how do you know where to go with, with these truck-mounted radars? It depends on how you are wanting to scan the storm with respect to how close you want to be to it and what particular phenomena you're wanting to look at. We tend to try to get as close as we safely can. So I'm talking, you know, maybe a mile or so away from the tornado. You and your team use this truck-mounted radar system to capture the full evolution of four tornadoes. From that data, you concluded that tornadoes start or or at least can start from the ground up. How did you get there? Basically, what, what we did is we used this really rapidly scanning radar to look at the key signature that's determined from the radar velocity data that we collect. And we looked at how that rotational signature, it's referred to as a tornado vortex signature, evolved from scan to scan as we were collecting our data. If it were going to form from the top down, we would see this tornado vortex signature first occurring aloft, and then with time, we would see it progressing downward toward the ground. What we ended up finding is that in the four cases that we looked at, that was not the case for any of those four cases. So what we ended up seeing in three out of those four was there was strong rotation, and then that strong rotation kind of suddenly built upward, and over a period of time of about 30 seconds or so, you could see it actually grow upward or potentially suddenly appear throughout the depth of the column that we were scanning. So it was very clear to us that there was not this top-down signature. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not a pioneer as far as this bottom-up hypothesis is concerned. This has been around for decades, but we were for the first time able to confirm that that hypothesis was what was occurring in these four cases. What does this mean in terms of tornado forecasting? Unfortunately, the conclusions that we're drawing here are actually not particularly favorable for forecasters and for operational meteorologists. From a forecaster perspective, you would actually like to have the alternate uh, occurring so that you could see that mid-level rotation and sort of be able to progressively track that downward with time. Because these are starting at such low heights, the conventional radar technology that we have available to our forecasters actually misses that signal entirely because the radar cannot physically collect data at that low elevation. So it's unfortunately kind of a dismal prospect for forecasters. Your findings come at a time in which tornadoes are becoming more powerful and more frequent. What's happening right now that's causing these more powerful storms? So the idea of power within a storm is a little bit subjective, and it kind of depends on who who you ask. 
What we are seeing for sure is an increasing amount of diversity in the year over which tornadoes are forming. So one year we tend to have fewer tornadoes and then the following year we have a lot of tornadoes. So there's actually an increasing amount of variability to tornado events across the whole spectrum of space and time right now. And because of the nature of the volatility of the environment, that can contribute to perhaps more intense storms and more intense tornadoes. And why is that exactly happening? You know, there are people that are trying to bring that into the context of climate change. Those links are a little bit weak, but they are improving as we go forward with time and our computational abilities are growing. That's Jana Hauser, whose recent work supporting a bottom-up theory of tornado genesis was presented at the American Geophysical Union's fall meeting. Jana, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Can you stick around for a little bit to chat with our next guest at the end of the program? Sure, absolutely. Next up, The Environmental Economist. To set this up, I want to take you back to a show we put together last November. And we find that for every degree higher than that average that the temperature is, the crimes go up by a third of a percent. And so, for instance, if you have a summer day that the temperature has soared to 15 degrees higher than average, you would see a 5% increase in crime, for example, in aggressive crime. That's the voice of quantitative analyst Sherry Towers, who joined us a few months back to talk about her research, which demonstrates a strong correlation between higher temperatures and aggressive crime. And that probably doesn't come as a surprise to my next guest, whose recent research demonstrates that hot temperatures are basically just really bad for human functioning in general. Hotter days have been associated with sleep quality, with mental health, suicide, and, as we just learned, with crime. And all of these things conspire together to make the jobs of public servants a lot harder. Nick Obradovich, let's go back a bit. A lot of us are focused on the big and obvious problems that are related to climate change, like rising sea levels and drought and increased catastrophic weather events. What got you thinking about the way that climate impacts people at a more personal level? Obviously, the big, huge uh, threats are indeed big, huge threats, and I don't want to unlide focus on them by talking about other things. But the reality is that we live in a very complex system, and in this complex system, we're turning up the heat. While that can cause hugely catastrophic things like global sea level rise and uh, failure of crop, it also can affect us on a day-to-day basis because at its very basic, uh, we're influenced by the weather outside and the weather inside, and it affects what we do, uh, what we think, how we sleep, and, and all these related things. So that's how it started. Let's start by talking about food safety. You've pointed out that spikes in temperature are correlated to fewer food safety inspections. We also had seen literature coming from economists, environmental economists, as well as ergonomists, that have looked at basically how people perform in the context of hotter temperatures. And one of the things we thought was, okay, well, if crime is increasing and perhaps uh, people's, for example, uh, accidents, uh, fatal crashes uh, on the road are increasing, might we see that the street-level bureaucrats that are tasked with overseeing these outcomes are also affected by those temperatures? Because we've seen in, in settings where economists are looking at, for example, people who are working outside in agricultural settings and their productivity declines. Well, if you're supposed to go into, for example, a hot restaurant in a hot kitchen on a hot day and wait around and inspect the quality of the food safety practices in that kitchen, maybe you don't on a particularly hot day. Maybe you wait until 
a few days later when it's less warm than the day that you were supposed to inspect. Or maybe you skip that inspection entirely. And just like in the case of food safety, when it's hotter, the number of traffic stops decrease. If you're a police officer and you're on the road and it's 100 degrees outside and sunny, somebody's slightly speeding, maybe you're less likely to pull them over and give them a regulatory violation for their speeding because you realize that you're going to be standing out in the heat for a while, uh, walking back and forth between your cars and, and writing up a ticket. So take me through your process. How did you go about collecting this and studying this data? Fortunately, uh, over the last decade or so, many more records with respect to public health and safety have become available publicly. So we were able to get um, something like 70 million regulatory police stops between uh, 2000 and 2017. We had hundreds of thousands of recorded fatal vehicular accidents, and we had uh, millions of uh, food safety and, and violations across millions of inspections. And we were able to use all this data and couple it with the weather that those places and those people experienced on those days to see how that weather influenced the incidents of, of uh, kind of public safety problems, as well as the changes in the degree to which the regulators actually did their job. So you've used these examples, the, the police examples, the food safety examples, as proxies for governance in general. And that's the basis of your paper, which suggests that climate change can adversely impact governance, not just in food safety, not just in police work, but across a wide range of governmental spectrums, right? Obviously, we don't want to talk too far beyond the data that we have available. We see the effects in these data. We don't know for sure that it operates elsewhere, but we suspect somewhat strongly that it might. But the data certainly seems to be pointing in one direction. What's the next steps in this research? How do you better validate this hypothesis? One of the things that's very important to me is to not just look at the United States. Not all places have the degree of political institutionalization that the United States does. I, I've done a lot of field work uh, in sub-Saharan African countries, and there's just not as much oversight on, in terms of how public service workers are doing their job. And so the next step that I would like to see with this research that we're working on is to try and gather data from countries that have lower levels of political development to see what the effects look like there. The other thing is that the U.S. is a more temperate climate on average. And so might these effects in India, for example, be much more acute? So those are some of the outstanding questions that I'd, I'd like to look at further. You've done related research that suggests that mental health is impacted by climate change, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? It was an interesting study. We had, we had done a study a while back where we actually looked at the influence of weather on people's sentiment in their social media speech. So we had a few billion posts from Twitter and from Facebook and basically tracked individuals' sentiment over time as they were exposed to different temperature conditions. And we found that in hot temperatures, as well as in cold temperatures, people's sentiment decreased. They, they kind of expressed that they were in worse emotional states or worse moods. After we had finished that up, another set of my colleagues published a paper in which they looked at rates of suicide uh, in the U.S. and Mexico and found that suicide rates increased with temperature, pretty linearly, actually. And so we wondered if there was kind of an in-between. Were people also reporting that their mental health status, not just their mood, but kind of whether or not they were anxious and depressed, did that also increase with exposure to hotter temperatures? And that is what we found in the study that you're referencing, that indeed um, people report that they experience more negative mental health outcomes and that they have worse mental health in the context of hotter temperatures. So we kind of have this 
full picture now on the mental health spectrum where everything from daily sentiment and mood to kind of medium scale mental health quality to extreme negative health, mental health outcomes are all negatively influenced by hotter temperatures. You study the impact of climate on very large groups of people. Do you ever worry about how climate change is impacting you? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to work on climate change and not uh, be affected by climate change. I think that probably the, the biggest effect of climate change on me as a researcher is actually having to think about it all the time, <laughs> if I'm quite honest. It is tough to sit with many of the very significant conclusions that the literature has in it with respect to how for the most part, climate change is going to be pretty disastrous for uh, human well-being around the world and even in the United States, especially if we don't act pretty soon to curtail our emissions. That's Nick Obradovich, whose recent work in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences suggests that global warming might be making government less effective. Nick, can I introduce you to someone? Yes, please. This is atmospheric scientist Jana Hauser. And Jana, this is environmental economist Nick Obradovich. Well, hello. Nice to meet you. Hi, Jana. Nice to meet you as well. Your research is fascinating. As is yours. So one of the things that I kind of realized about your research, Jana, is that there is literally no way in which the things that I do at my desk will ever be as exciting as what you're doing in the field. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think no matter how hard I try, I can convince my students that data science is ever quite as exciting as chasing around tornadoes. So that was pretty awesome. Thank you. Well, Nick, I had something that kind of struck me as I was listening to you. And, you know, obviously your research is focused predominantly on temperature effects. Um, But I was thinking about human behavior and how human behavior is tied into the weather and specifically decision-making processes. And an experience came to my mind as I was hearing you talk that really illustrated this example. So I'm going to take you back to 2013 in uh, central Oklahoma. There was a big EF5 tornado that devastated the town of Moore on May 20th of 2013. Just 11 days later, on May 31st, another giant tornado, in fact, it actually now holds the record for the widest tornado ever reported, and also was one of the case studies that I looked at, hit El Reno, Oklahoma. And it was a very well-broadcast storm. Um, You know, the newscasters were reporting on it. People were out with their video cameras. And it actually incited panic in people in Oklahoma City because they were forecasting and saying, you know, the storm could potentially move into the outskirts of Oklahoma City. It was so bad that people literally evacuated the city and there was mass panic and chaos on the roads and gridlock and people driving the wrong way down highways. And it really incited this sense of urgency and panic that people needed to get out and to leave. So thankfully, that tornado decayed and that storm didn't produce another tornado. However, if it had, it went right down the highway and we would have been looking at a catastrophic situation where hundreds, if not thousands of people were injured because they're trying to escape it and then in their own sense of panic have created this gridlock and this situation that they can't escape from. So I was wondering if you had any kind of experience in in looking kind of at the emotional response of people and individuals in the face of, you know, climate change and climate patterns. I've certainly looked at and kind of studied and paid pretty close attention to decisions around evacuations for uh, cities and municipalities, either in the context of, you know, wildfire or in the context of hurricanes. It is seemingly a pretty excruciating decision when it comes down to it because 
there is just often so much uncertainty about the actual impacts associated with the storm as it was in the, in, in the case that you mentioned there. One of the things that would be great is if you could reduce the degree of uncertainty with respect to the forecast themselves, which you talked about a bit in, in describing your research and actually mentioning that your research may make it harder to do accurate forecasts of uh, tornadoes or at least point in that direction somewhat. So that would be the first thing, right? As a political scientist, one of the ways you can help politicians and bureaucrats and uh, you know technocrats do a better job is provide them with better information and reduce the uncertainty that they face. Because just like regular humans, when faced with uncertainty, we don't do the best job all the time, especially when there are big consequences associated with those, those uncertainties. The other thing is, okay, what are, what are the effects on individuals, individual citizens, when they face these kind of big, complex, catastrophic risks? And in the paper that we published on mental health recently, we did look at the effects of Hurricane Katrina on longer-term mental health outcomes for people that were exposed to it. And we saw a pretty sizable and negative effect of exposure to it. The situation that you described is, is really a terrifying one, though, where the complicated risks and uncertainties actually could potentially make something dramatically worse. And then you have pretty substantial long-term emotional consequences. If, for example, the storm that you're talking about did produce a tornado, it did run down the highway, and lots of people lost their lives. So there are real, real consequences of the climates that we're playing with. You know, I, as I was listening to you talk, I, I was really interested in the discussion that you were having about the degree to which climate change can influence tornado genesis and also the intensity of tornado days. And I was curious to ask, like, how, how good are the records that we have and how far back do those records go with respect to intensity of tornado and the number of tornadoes in a particular location on a particular day? What does that data look like? We have tornado records, official tornado records, back through 1950. 1950 was the first year that things started to come together and organizationally in the National Weather Service. But there have been significant changes both in technology as well as just lifestyle that biases the validity of looking at that long-term record. Think about what technology was like back in the 1950s. I mean, people oftentimes didn't even have TVs in their homes. So the records that we have from really before the early 1970s are really biased by population. What we see in those early records is you have a lot of tornado reports around cities. So that almost creates the sense that tornadoes are occurring near the cities. You know, Farmer Joe, who has a tornado go through his cornfield and, you know, maybe doesn't even have a telephone, he's not going to call his National Weather Service office and say, oh, hey, I just had a tornado go through my field. Everything's fine, but nobody's hurt, you know. So there's a lot of missing reports in those early years. And then in the 1990s, with the implementation of the Weather Service radar network, we see a sudden spike in the number of tornado reports. So if you were looking at the very raw data, it would look unequivocally like we were seeing a lot more tornadoes with time. But that is very much biased by this population and technology effect here. The overall numbers are not really increasing. One of the things, Jenna, that you were just talking about is this variability I hearken to studies that have been done on uh, military veterans, and one of the things that really aggravate the incidence of post-traumatic stress long-term is variability in attack. The uncertainty of when an attack might come plays upon the human psyche in such a way that causes long-term consequences. And Nick, I'm wondering if 
that's a connection that we can make to your research because certainly you're concerned about long-term mental health outcomes of climate change on different groups of people. You said it perfectly. One of the things that we might be worried about in terms of, for example, people who live on the coast is that if the severity and the frequency of tropical cyclones, hurricanes is increasing, even if you're not hit directly by a a tropical cyclone, you kind of have this sense that, man, my baseline probability of having my house destroyed or getting flooded is going up. And to the extent that that is a pretty existential uncertainty, we would expect that just the awareness of that threat could possibly influence people's mental well-being. Now, it bears mentioning that the polling data that we have indicates that most people don't actually think that much about climate change on a regular basis. And the degree to which people think about climate change on a regular basis is somewhat moderated by people's political ideology. So if you believe in climate change as a a problem, you're more likely to think about it, which kind of makes sense. So it might not be the case that people yet are too overly concerned about the degree to which climate change is increasing the probability of their exposure to a storm. However, they might still be concerned that, hey, it looks like people are getting wiped out left and right by storms. Maybe I should be worried for my own property and my own life. So, Jana, no pressure, but the more certainty people can have about where storms come from, the better off they might be. I wish I could promise that improvement, but I would um, not be being honest with myself. I mean, we're making progress, but the nature of the atmosphere is that it's uncertain and unpredictable, and that's just a, you know, a characteristic of it. And unfortunately, it's, it's very challenging to kind of come up with a metric of that uncertainty, perhaps, and maybe make people feel more secure if we could improve the, the quality and the certainty. The best we can do is keep working. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Nick Obradovich, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks again for having me. It was fantastic. And Jenna Hauser, thank you. Thank you as well. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussauds. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.